As we come to hear God's word, let's bow and pray and thank him for the opportunity to hear his word and ask that he would work in us this morning. Please bow with me as we pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to gather freely to hear your word this morning. We thank you for preserving your word, for providing translations that we can readily read and access here this morning. And Lord, we pray that you would work this morning by the power of the Holy Spirit to take the truth of your word, to deposit it deep within us, and to bring fruit this morning from your glory, fruit that would be in keeping with repentance and faith. Lord, we pray that this morning as we look to your word, we'd be reminded of your kindness to us in Jesus, Lord, that our eyes would be drawn to Christ, to his glory, to his beauty, to forgiveness that's found in his name, that we would be strengthened this morning as a church in our faith, comforted in our faith. And for any that are here this morning who do not yet know you, Lord, we pray this would be the morning that they put their faith in Jesus as we sit and listen to your word. Lord, help me to faithfully preach your word this morning. I thank you for the privilege it is and honor that it is to preach your word. I pray that you'd help me to say things that are true and faithful and helpful this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it's been about two years since we've had snow here in the Charlotte region. And some of you are happy about that. You moved from up north, you moved from the Midwest, and you are happy to leave the snow shovel behind. But for Southerners, we, we love our snow. It's a rare event. And when there's a forecast mentioning snow, if you haven't seen this phenomenon yet, we rush to the supermarket. We buy all sorts of things, particularly every loaf of bread will be gone. Every gallon of milk, except for skim milk and almond milk, you can have that. But everything else will be taken. Every box of eggs will be gone. We get ready for snow. And all it takes is about one inch of snow, and we are snowed in. Everything shuts down. It, it might as well have been a blizzard that comes through. We don't think about leaving our homes. And you northerners love to make fun of us southerners for how we cannot drive in the snow. And we know that's true. We know it's true. However, when it snows here, do not expect our roads to be cleared quickly. Right? That's part of the challenge, especially if you live back in there. Maybe Independence Boulevard gets cleared off, but your neighborhood, it may take a couple days before the ice and the layers of different snow and sludge are gone. I remember when I visited my mother-in-law in western Pennsylvania, and one time we were there, we got about 10 inches of snow on Christmas day, and I thought, we're not getting out of here. I'm a southerner. Right? I'm thinking, we're not getting out of here anytime soon, 10 inches. I mean, we get one inch and Charlotte, and you're stuck, what are we going to do with 10 inches of snow? And lo and behold, about an hour after it stopped snowing, all the roads were cleared there in her city, including her neighborhood. Some guy with a truck with a plow on the front came through plowing those neighborhood streets, and we were out of her house within about an hour after it got done snowing. The roads were made ready. They were prepared. There was no sliding around on ice or Sludge. It was easy to travel northerners when there's no ice or snow on the road. You see, roads being prepared makes all the difference when it comes to driving in winter weather. Well, our passage in Luke this morning compares our hearts to roads needing to be prepared to be traveled on. 
It addresses this morning the Gospel of Luke, the spiritual preparation that our hearts need to be ready to receive Jesus Christ, the Lord. And a question I have for you that comes out of this passage this morning that I think you should consider is this. If your heart were a road, would it be a path prepared for the Lord? If your heart were a road, would it be a path prepared for the Lord? Well, this morning in the Gospel of Luke, we look at the ministry of John the Baptist, who spiritually prepared hearts to be ready to receive the long-awaited Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Lord. If you haven't already done so, turn with me now. Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 22 is where we're going to be this morning. We heard that read just a few minutes ago. If you want to take that copy of God's Word in front of you, the best way to stay engaged in this sermon is to open up a copy of the Bible. And you can use that Pew Bible if you'd like. Turn to page 858. Page 858, we're going to be in Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 22 this morning. The main idea that I want us to see from this passage is this. Repentance prepares us for the Lord and points us to His promise. Repentance prepares us for the Lord and points us To his promise. We were in Luke chapter 2 last week. About 18 years have passed between Luke chapter 2, the end there, Jesus as a little 12 year old boy in the temple, and then what we see in Luke chapter 3. In Luke chapter 3, before we get to the public ministry of Jesus at age 30, first we look at the public ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the forerunner, the lead blocker, if you will, for Jesus, the Messiah, clearing the way for Jesus. And we saw earlier on in our study of Luke, back in Luke chapter 1, the angel of the Lord told Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, that he was to name his son John. And the name John means the Lord is gracious. And this angel of the Lord told Zechariah that his son was sent by God, that John would make ready for the Lord a people prepared. That was his job. That was his ministry. And his message of repentance was preparing hearts to spiritually receive the Lord. As we make our way through this passage this morning, I want us to notice two scenes here. We'll break our passage up into two scenes. The first scene in verses 1 through 14, preparing the way for the coming king. That's what John the Baptist was doing in this first scene, preparing the way for the coming king. Now Luke is a historian, so we've noted before he was likely a physician, but he's also a historian. And he's writing a narrative here. And in verse 1, he locates the historical context of John the Baptist's ministry. Remember, we've jumped forward 12 years from Luke chapter 2. So there's five different Roman officials listed there in verse 1. He's locating the period of time that John the Baptist showed up. You see Tiberius Caesar, and you see Pilate as two of the five Roman emperors, or Roman officials rather, that are listed there. They both were real men in history. 
And then in verse 2, Annas and Caiaphas, both high priests in Israel at the time. Real people. Everyone else listed in the Gospel of Luke, real people, really lived. John the Baptist, he really lived. Jesus, he really lived. So if you're new to the Bible this morning, we want you to know that. This is a book of history. These are not just inspirational stories preserved and collected to inspire us to live a better life. This is history that points us to new life found only in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And therefore, all of the events described in the Gospel of Luke are history. They really happened. Jesus died on the cross. Fact. On the third day, he got up from the dead. Fact. And so in light of that historical fact that we're gathered here this morning as Christians worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, everything that Luke wrote here, it's an orderly account set in history. And the purpose is to help you know for certain who Jesus is and what he came to do. Now, the main event here in the beginning of chapter 3 is that the Word of God came to John the Baptist. Now, it's different from what's happening this morning. You're sitting in a pew and we're looking at the Word of God, the Holy Bible. What's happening here in this phrase, this is pointing out John the Baptist as a prophet. He's in the line of the Old Testament prophets. The Word of God came to John. So prophets speak a word that comes from God. John's ministry and his message was not a human message. It didn't originate with people. His message, his ministry originated with God. And the Word of God coming to John is an amazing event in the whole story of the Bible. At this point in the story of the Bible, there had been over 400 years that had passed since God had sent a prophet. Right, so if you end in the Old Testament, the prophet, the last book there of Malachi, and then go to the, the New Testament, you go from 400 B.C. to 30 A.D. A little over 400 years that's often referred to as the silence period. It does not mean that God was in, not at work. Certainly God was at work preparing the way for the Messiah to come. But in that silence period, God had not sent a prophet. God had not spoken to his people through a prophet. So this is an amazing event that happens right here. After almost 400 years of silence, here in verse 2, the word of God came to John the Baptist. God sent his promised messenger, John the Baptist, to prepare the way for Jesus. Now, this wasn't unexpected. God's people were told long ago this messenger would come. One place in the Old Testament that looks forward to John the Baptist's coming is in the prophet Isaiah. We see here prophet Isaiah uh, chapter 40 verses 3 through 5 is quoted here in Luke 3 verses 4 through 6. Now Isaiah lived about 800 years before John the Baptist. In verses 4 through 6, Luke is quoting from Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5, where Isaiah was looking forward to God, sending a voice crying out in the wilderness, one who will prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. Now, in my study this week, I read that during the time period that Isaiah prophesied, when a king would travel throughout a region of the wilderness, a crew of workers would go before him. 
And their job was to make sure that a path was cleared, that a road was made ready for the king to travel. So any debris, any obstructions, anything in the way, that that path would be cleared. The road made smooth and ready for his arrival. As well, there would be a messenger sent ahead of the king, a messenger that would herald the king is coming, making sure the people were aware of what was about to happen, a visit from the king. This messenger would herald the news of his coming. So John the Baptist is that servant preparing the way for the Lord, that messenger heralding the long-awaited king. He's coming. John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus, the Messiah. Now, the preparation needed to welcome this king wasn't clearing off a physical path of debris and obstructions, but rather clearing off a spiritual path. In other words, hearts being prepared and made ready to receive Jesus. And the way that John the Baptist did that was by baptizing and proclaiming. That's what we see there in verse 3. John the Baptist proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What would prepare the way for the Lord? Repentance. Repentance, preparing hearts to receive Jesus. You know, if you were to summarize John the Baptist's ministry in one word, that word would be repent. That was his message. It's really what all prophets did. They were calling people to turn back to the Lord, to repent. And repenting literally means a change of mind. Something that happens on on the inside, namely agreeing with God and what he's said in his word about sin. It's agreeing with God, having a change of, of mind. So think about repentance as a change of mind that produces a change in action, a change of mind inwardly that leads to an outward change of life. Simply put, to repent involves both turning away from sin, and turning toward God. Turning away from sin and turning toward God's Word and obedience to His Word. And repentance is an inseparable part of the gospel message. So when we talk about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, we're not just recounting interesting facts about Jesus. The gospel certainly tells us that God created us. The gospel certainly tells us that we're sinful, That we've sinned against God. We violated his commandments and we've rejected his loving authority over us. The gospel necessarily tells us who Jesus is. He's the Son of God, truly God and truly man. He came down from heaven to lay his life down and die on the cross as a substitute. He laid his life down as a payment for our sin in our place. The gospel tells us that Jesus, he died and he was buried, but he didn't stay in the grave. On the third day, he got up from the dead. He overcame sin and Satan and death. But friends, the gospel doesn't stop there. That's the good news we must believe and we must know. But there's a necessary response to the gospel. And if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, you've responded in this way. You've repented of your sin and put your faith In Jesus Christ, you've turned away from sin and turned toward God, agreeing with him about what he's said in his word, that you're a sinner, that you're in need of his grace and his forgiveness. You've agreed with him 
about what he said in his word, that Jesus is the only way to be forgiven of your sins. He's the only way to heaven. You've agreed with God and what he said in his word that you're unrighteous, that Jesus Christ alone is righteous, and therefore you must turn away from sin, turn away from yourself, and trust in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins. If you have not yet repented, that means you've not yet received forgiveness of your sins through faith in Jesus Christ. And it is our call to you this morning. We joyfully and urgently say to you, repent and believe in Jesus. You can do that today. You can talk to somebody who, who brought you. Maybe that's mom and dad who brought you this morning. You want to talk to them more about what it would look like to repent and believe in Jesus. Talk to a friend who invited you, any of our members around you. Talk to any of your pastors. We'll be at the doors afterwards. I'll be right down here. We'd love to talk with you more about what it would look like to get right with God today and be forgiven of your sins through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, the second word you would use to describe John's ministry is baptize. I mean, he's John the Baptist, so he called people to repent and to be baptized. He claimed, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The word baptize means to immerse or to dip. And John's baptism was a preparatory baptism, a baptism that looked forward, a baptism that anticipated the coming Messiah, Jesus, a baptism that looked forward to what Jesus would do in his work on earth. Now, a baptism eventually that would be superseded by the baptism into the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which if you're a member of this church, you've had that baptism upon profession of faith in Jesus. John's call was to repent and to be baptized. And that baptism was a public profession. An individual publicly announcing repentance of sin and turning toward God. That's what that baptism was that John was performing in the wilderness. And by the way, why the wilderness? You may wonder, you see that John the Baptist came out in the wilderness, that Prophet Isaiah looked forward to the wilderness. Think about the people of God, Israel. Where were they wandering for 40 years? The wilderness. And what did they cross before they came into the promise, into the promised land? A river, the Jordan River. Wilderness, river, promise. John the Baptist coming out of the wilderness, baptizing in the river into the promise. God's people forgiven of their sins, filled with the Holy Spirit of God. We see here that John was calling people to be baptized. Repent of your sin against God. Receive forgiveness from God for your sin against Him. And then be baptized as a testimony of the forgiveness of sins already received by repenting and believing God. And all of this happened before Jesus' public ministry. Now, I think there's something that we need to consider here. And I just shared it a moment ago. Oh, oh Chris, when we share the good news of Jesus with people, which I prayed this morning, like we pray most weeks, Lord, give us opportunities to share the gospel this week. We want to call people around. Now, we don't want to just tell them our testimony. That's a good thing. We don't want to just tell them interesting things about Jesus. We need to share the facts about Jesus, his death and his resurrection. But the hardest part sometimes in evangelism is saying, this is for you too. This is not just a truth. This is the only truth. Christianity is not just a way to God. Jesus is the only way to God. And therefore, you must repent and believe in Jesus. And I would encourage you in your evangelism, call people to repent 
and believe in Jesus. You might even ask them a question, something like, hey, what would keep you from turning away from your sin and trusting in Jesus today? Part of our evangelism is joyfully and honestly and urgently calling those around us to repent and believe in Jesus. And guess what might happen if we do that? God just might save some people. Let's be faithful to preach the gospel. Well, the response to John's call to repentance, it was massive. Crowds came to be baptized. But what John says next may seem surprising. Yes, he practiced spontaneous baptism. But his message was not merely, hey, everybody who hears this message and feels good about it, come on down. What he says next in verse 7 may surprise you. He rebukes the crowd. You brood of vipers. He calls them snakes. The image of deceivers. The image of the serpent from Genesis chapter 3. The image of Satan. In other words, he's saying you're offspring of the serpent, of Satan. Now that doesn't exactly seem to be a way to win a following, to gain the respect of people and make a lot of friends. Right, so sure, he's practicing spontaneous baptism, but he's not after easy followers. He's not just after the masses and being able to report on some report to his denomination how many people responded to a call that Sunday. He asked them, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Which seems to be asking something like, who told you that baptism would save you from God's judgment? John was really clear, baptism doesn't save you. Baptism was something you do after you've repented and believed in, in, in God. If they want to survive God's judgment for sin, they need to possess the necessary fruit that comes with repentance. And that's why he says in verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Now we've thought about fruits back in our study of Galatians in Galatians chapter 5. Fruit refers to visible works, a visible produce of godly character in your life of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and many other fruits. And fruit also refers to visible works, like obedience to God's Word. You turn away from sin, and there's visible obedience in your life. Years ago when I ministered in a context in, in a college campus where a lot of people would claim to be Christians, but it was questionable if they had sincere faith in Jesus, a question I would ask often was that if you were arrested for being a Christian and charged, would there be enough evidence to convict you in a court of law? It's one thing to say you're a Christian, but then there's evidence, visible fruit, that surely you're a Christian. There's a love for God and love for others that's seen in your life and godly character and a delight to obey God's word, evident and visible in your life. You see, he doesn't want these people coming forward to have false assurance that they would go to heaven and be right with God simply if they got baptized. You see, fake repentance doesn't produce the fruit of a changed life, of obedience to God. Repentance often gets confused with remorse, which remorse is just feeling bad about something that you did. And maybe you can think about, I know I, I can, before I was a Christian, I would feel bad about something and I'd go to bed and get back up the next day and do the same things. That's not repentance. That's just feeling bad. Anybody can feel bad. You don't have to be a Christian to feel bad. Lots of people feel guilty. That's why there's self-help books out there. That's why gyms are full right now in January. People feel guilty. They feel bad about things in life. You don't have to be a Christian to feel bad. But you, in order to be a Christian, you have to repent, which means a change of mind that produces a change of life. 
John warns them to be ready for God's coming. Judgment and repentance toward God is the only way to be prepared and ready. Notice that John also warns them not to find confidence in their ancestral roots. In in verse 8, he tells them not to find any comfort that they merely belong to the nation of Israel and count themselves as descendants of Abraham. That is not enough to be made right with God. They were unclean because of their sin against God and need of cleansing, needed to confess their sins to repent and be baptized. In other words, he's saying God will judge the wicked, including the wicked in Israel, which would have been shocking to them. They would have thought, of course, those pagan nations, they need to repent. But the nation of Israel, do we really need to repent? Here comes John saying, all people everywhere must repent and turn to God for forgiveness of sins. In verse 9, John proclaims that this acts of God, which is an image for judgment, this acts of God, God's divine judgment will come on Israel. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Fire is an image of God's wrath. It's an image of, of judgment. It's an image connected to a real place called hell, a place of conscious, eternal torment for those who have not been forgiven of their sins through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. It's not popular to talk about hell in America. Sadly, sometimes it's not popular amongst Christians to talk about hell. But Jesus talked about hell. John the Baptist certainly talked about hell. When you die, you will either go to heaven or hell. It would be unloving for us not to share this truth from God's Word with you. The only way to go to heaven, to be saved from the highway, the path to hell, is repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus Christ, His death and His resurrection to be forgiven. And the good news is that forgiveness is available to all. So while you have life and while you have breath, this opportunity is available to you now. His message, don't count on baptism to save you. Don't count on your connection to Abraham to save you. Today, this looks something like thinking that because you go to church, or at least because you identify as a Christian, like, well, I'm not Jewish, and I'm, I'm not Muslim, and I'm not atheist. I celebrate Christmas. I celebrate, so I must be a Christian. Well, that doesn't mean that you've put your faith in Jesus. You may celebrate those holidays, but that's different from being a Christian, meaning trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of, of sins. John the Baptist would probably bring those things up if he were speaking to this crowd. Don't think that all those things mean you're right with God and that you should expect that you'll go to heaven when you die. Just because you were sprinkled as an infant doesn't mean you're a Christian and going to heaven. Lots of people in the city walking around today thinking because they were sprinkled as infants that they're going to go to heaven one day. Baptism does not save you because you prayed a prayer. Because you went to vacation Bible school and prayed a prayer that you'll go to heaven one day. Praying a prayer doesn't save you. Christ does. And the only way to receive Christ is to repent and believe in Jesus. Only those who repent of their sin and trust in Jesus are saved from God's wrath and judgment. We talk about this word saved. Saved from what? What's speaking to God's wrath and judgment. That's what it means to be saved. You're saved from your sin and God's wrath and judgment against sin. Now, repentance requires a response, a change of mind, again, that produces a change of action. And in verses 10 through 14, 
we find some examples of what true repentance looks like, of what it looks like to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So three groups come to John asking him pretty much the same question, right? What shall we do? God's judgment is coming. We hear you. We hear you loud and clear. What should we do? How can we be ready is what they're asking. First, in verse 10, the crowds ask this, what then shall we do? Then in verse 12, the tax collectors ask the same question, teacher, what shall we do? And the third group in verse 14, the soldiers, and what shall we do? And to each group, John answers what repentance looks like, and he speaks to loving your neighbor. Again, a change of mind that will lead to a change of life and action. That's what John calls each group to change your minds about God and change your actions to obey God. Here's what John says it looks like to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. First to the crowds, he tells them to give a tunic. If you have two tunics, which is like an undergarment, like a, like a shirt. If you have two, then that means you've got one for yourself. Give that other one to someone who doesn't have a, a tunic. If you have enough food to eat and you have extra food, give that food to someone else who doesn't have food. Which, by the way, I love that our members did that yesterday downstairs in our food pantry. Just gave food that many of you donated to those who are in need of food. And most importantly, gave people the gospel of Jesus Christ, an invitation to trust in Him. Basically, repenting means turning away from selfishness and stingy living, and to give generously to those who are in need. In order to do that, you have to be free from a love of possessions. It means you're not clinging to what you have, but rather understanding what you have is given by God, and then being aware of those around you who have need, and then generously giving to that need. The second group he addresses, the tax collectors. Tax collectors don't think IRS, or thank, if you're here this morning, you work for the IRS, we're thankful for you. We're not always thankful for paying taxes, but we're thankful for you, and the work you do. That's different than what the Roman tax collectors were. They were often seen as people who sold out their own people there to the Roman occupiers, and they'd have to collect taxes for Rome. But the way they'd rip people off, let's say if they had to collect a certain percentage to give to Rome, they would just keep upping the percentage, and they'd be able to keep what's on top. They were robbing their fellow countrymen to give to Roman occupiers. Repentance here called for them to stop stealing. Stop taking more than you're authorized to take. So repent, change your business practice, and do your job honestly. Notice he didn't tell them to quit their job. He just told them to do your job honestly. And then third to the soldiers, he tells them that repentance requires that they stop extorting money from others. A soldier's job was not a high-paying job, but it was something that came with a lot of force and power, the force of physical threats, weapons being used against you, falsely accusing you of crimes and taking you in to kind of shake people down in order to get money from them. And he tells the soldiers to stop wrongly using their power and taking others' money and rather be content with your own wages. Have a change of mind that produces a change of action. That's what repentance is. Now, all of these have to do with loving your neighbor. What are the two greatest commandments? Love God, and then what? Love your neighbor as yourself. And even as we see in the New Testament letter of 1 John, 
A love for God will be seen through loving your neighbor. If you're you're taking advantage of your neighbor and stealing from them and relating to them in hateful, selfish ways, you really can't claim to love God. He calls each of them to ask the question, really, why do you not love your neighbor? Ultimately, it's because you don't love God. And notice that in each of these situations, a love of money and a love of possessions is a key obstacle to loving your neighbor, which is something we need to be really sensitive to in America and in Charlotte, North Carolina, that our love for possessions and our love and our enjoyment of them and this consumer society we live in that just tells us consume more things and enjoy them, that often works against our love for God and our love for neighbor. Well, do you love God more than you love this present world? That'll be seen by loving your neighbor. Do you love God more than your money and your possessions? Or is it just a life of Jesus plus? I want Jesus plus this particular life. I want Jesus plus a high-paying job. I want Jesus plus a, a really big house. I want Jesus plus the American dream. Repentance is not Jesus plus. It's turning away from sin and saying, all I desire is Christ. And whatever he chooses to give me, I want to be a good steward of that. And notice again, John's call to repent doesn't involve people abandoning their jobs, but rather living differently in their daily lives. You see, there's an initial call to repentance, which I've been talking about. But bearing fruits and keeping with repentance helps us know that the Christian life is that we repent more and more. If you thought that the Christian life was about repenting less and less, just kind of becoming more sure of yourself and and more confident in your own obedience, you have a misunderstanding of the Christian life. The more we mature as Christians, the more we grow in our faith, the more sensitive we are to our sin against God. Therefore, the more we repent, the more we pray prayers like what Chad led us in this morning, confessing our sins to God, because the more bothered we are by our disobedience to God. Well, what do you need to repent of, Christian? The list of that prayer of confession is meant to help us think through that. Stinginess, selfishness, pride, a lack of concern for others physically or spiritually, focused on our own lives and our own interests and our own needs. Well, those who would be prepared for the coming of the King and for us, As Christians, we're not preparing for His first coming. We look back on His first coming. We're preparing for His second coming. We're preparing for the day we go to be with Him. Repentance prepares us for that day. Ask the Lord for His kindness to make you more sensitive to His glory and to our sin that we would bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Second scene, verses 15 through 22. Second scene in John's ministry pointing to the coming King. He prepared the way, and here in these verses, 15 through 22, he's pointing to the coming king. Now, John's ministry was gaining a lot of attention. His message had the crowds astonished, and we see in verse 15, people started wondering, is this guy the Messiah? Might he be the Christ? But John made it abundantly clear that he was simply preparing the way for the Messiah and pointing ahead. To the Messiah. Look at verse 16. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, 
He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Again, he's pointing to one mightier than he that's going to come. You know who unstrapped someone's sandals on that day? That dirty work of untying sandals and washing feet was assigned to the lowest slave. John says here, I'm not worthy to even be the lowest slave of the coming Messiah. And that's how it is for all who trust in Jesus. We know we're not worthy to serve him. Think about how how amazing it is to call yourself a Christian, a follower of Jesus, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, one who gets to come and worship God together to praise him for what he's done in Jesus Christ with other people. What an amazing gift of grace and kindness. And if you understand that amazing grace, that will change your motivation for obedience. It'll change your motivation for getting up on Sunday mornings and gathering as a church. It'll change the way you view every aspect of your life and every relationship. We know as Christians that it's all by grace that we can be called Christians and servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then consider this. Not only has God graciously made us servants of Jesus, but do you remember the story? We'll see it later on in Luke of how Jesus served his disciples. He untied their sandals and he washed their feet. Jesus the Son of God. Those who serve Jesus were not worthy of even the lowliest task of untying his sandals, yet Jesus willingly came as a servant, humbling himself to the point of the lowest slave, slave of all, to wash the feet of his disciples, indeed humbling himself to the point of death on a cross. John makes it clear that he's merely pointing the way to the one who will come that's mightier than him. The coming one, Jesus, will do things that only God can do. First off, that's seeing the baptism that Jesus will bring. John baptized with water. He would immerse people completely under the water. But Jesus, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John's water baptism symbolized what was to come. The coming Lord Jesus... He's the one who will accomplish all these things. First, Jesus, he will baptize with God's Holy Spirit, meaning only Jesus can cleanse someone on the inside. The coming Lord Jesus would pour out the Spirit of God on all those who believe in him. Spiritual cleansing and forgiveness prepared to receive the long promise, long-awaited promise of the Old Covenant, that everyone in the New Covenant would receive the Spirit of God. Jesus would also baptize with fire. That image of fire refers to judgment, which helps us know that Jesus has a role as judge. Both salvation and judgment came in one person, in Jesus. Those who reject him will be under judgment and remain there. But those who believe in Jesus will survive God's wrath and his judgment, will survive the fire and be filled with, with the Holy Spirit. Now, John makes this judgment clear in verse 17, uh, comparing the coming of Jesus to a farmer harvesting his wheat. And he uses a a word picture here of a winnowing fork. And this winnowing fork is used as an image, as a a tool of judgment. So so both the the wheat and the chaff are on the threshing floor. Chaff is kind of like the husk. 
that surrounds the wheat. Wheat, the part we eat, the good part, needs to be separated from the chaff. He says Jesus is coming to bring the repentant, the wheat, into the barn. But the chaff, a winnowing fork would throw them up in the air and then separate them. The chaff, the unrepentant, will be burned up in the unquenchable fire of God's judgment in hell. Wow, that's pretty intense. But notice in verse 18 that preaching something intense like this, like God's judgment, look what it says here, is a part of preaching the good news. Part of preaching the good news of the gospel is preaching who God is, who Jesus is. God is right to judge us for our sins. The, the good news is that God has provided salvation, a, a way to survive His judgment. He's right to judge us for our sin against Him. And if you skip over that judgment, well, then why on earth would someone need to be saved? Like, saved from what? And they may just think, well, I'm living a happy life. I'm fine. If, if Jesus helps you be happier, that's good for you. But I'm happy. I'm good. Like, that's cool. Like, you, you do you, and I, I'm good with what I do. But the great equalizer is God's judgment. He'll judge everyone, rich and poor, white-collar and blue-collar, people from every nation, people who call themselves Christians and are really Christians in name only, and people who have no interest in opening up a copy of the Bible. God will judge everyone. And the only way to escape his judgment is to repent and believe in Jesus. Romans 6.23 says the bad news for the wages of sin is death. And then gets to the good news. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We get to the good news through coming through that hard news. We see the glory of God's salvation as we consider his righteous judgment for sin. You see, Jesus came as the only one who could stand as a substitute in our place to take the wrath of God's judgment for our sin. And God's approval of Jesus as the substitute, the only one qualified to substitute, is seen in these final verses at the baptism of Jesus. In verse 21, many come to be baptized to profess repentance of their sin against God, but notice that Jesus comes to be baptized by John as well. And you may read this and think, well, why did Jesus get baptized? I mean, John was calling people to repent, to turn away from their sin, and to be baptized. But Jesus had no sin to repent of, no sin to confess. He was without sin. Indeed, as the Son of God, Jesus was entirely incapable of sinning. He doesn't seem to fit as a candidate for John's baptism. So, so why did Jesus get baptized? Well, Luke moves through this pretty quickly, but if you go to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew gives us more detail. And I can read for you Matthew 3, verses 13 through 15. Same scene in Matthew 3, 13 through 15. And we see that John the Baptist, he was confused too. Like, Jesus, why are you coming to be baptized by me? Verse 14 actually says, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John, then he consented. Now Jesus was baptized not because he lacked righteousness, but rather to fulfill righteousness. 
Consider this, in being baptized, Jesus submits to the same obedience required of Israel. He'd already obeyed God and never turned away from God in sin. Therefore, fulfilling the call to repent, it's kind of like, check, he didn't need to repent because he, he perfectly obeyed God and honored him in all that he did. But now, through John the Baptist, came a new command from God, through John the Baptist, be baptized. And Jesus obeyed this command just like any Israelite should have. Now, what's happening here is that Jesus is identifying with sinful humanity. When I say that, usually when we identify with someone, we mean that we are in some way like them. If you moved here from another part of the country, which is most of you, and you meet someone who's from your home state or hometown, even if they're like different from you, different age from you, there's something like you're like-minded with them about. You meet someone from Texas, and you're like, oh, where do I find good brisket around here? You meet from someone from New York, and you think, you kind of share their pain, like, where do you find a good slice of pizza? And where do you find a bagel? And you, you kind of are amazed that no one here knows what a knish is. You, you kind of identify with those people who are from where you're, you're, you're from. There's something that you, you share in identifying with them. Well, far more important than identifying over food and culture and geography is what we see here in Jesus' baptism. Sinless Jesus, truly God, identifies himself with sinful humanity. He came as one of us, truly a man, to take our sins upon himself as a substitute. And therefore, to fulfill all righteousness, he was baptized. You know, there's three different baptisms mentioned in the New Testament. John the Baptist's baptism, that was a preparatory, anticipatory baptism. It no longer exists. It was there for that, that time. Here we see the baptism of Jesus. That was a -a one-of-a-kind baptism. And then Christian, your baptism, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, this baptism as a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in his death and resurrection after you've become a believer. Three different baptisms. There's not infant baptism in the Bible. It's It's not there. John the Baptist, Jesus, believer's baptism. John's baptism prepared the way. Jesus' baptism, one of a kind. And consider here, we see in these final verses, shows us the one of a kind baptism. Verse 21, verse 22, look at how God responds. And when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open. That didn't happen at your baptism, not in that way. I think the heavens were rejoicing, but didn't open like this. The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, With you, I am well pleased. Jesus came up out of the water, and the Spirit came down. The Holy Spirit descends not as a dove, so it's not like a bird flapping around that came down. It says like a dove. I don't know really what that means, but it's a visible appearance of the invisible Spirit of God. A public event that those around could see. It wasn't just a private thing. A public event that people could see and could hear. The Holy Spirit descended on Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus was without the Spirit until that moment. Rather, this was the moment that Jesus was anointed and empowered for his public ministry. This marks the beginning of his ministry to come and die on the cross and rise from the dead. First came the Spirit, and then God spoke. And again, this was audible for all those present to hear. You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. The Trinity at work here, the Son is baptized, the Spirit anoints, the Father speaks, and God's word from heaven 
was his approval of Jesus. In other words, here, God identifies with Jesus. This is my beloved Son. He shares in divine authority. Jesus is God. It was here at the baptism of Jesus that he's publicly identified as the Son of God. And that changes everything in the world, and it changes everything in the Gospel of Luke. John's ministry is over. Herod, the ruler of the region, throws him in prison because John called him out for stealing his brother's wife. He reproved him of sin. He called sin, sin, and it cost him, and he was thrown in prison. But he did his job. He prepared the way for Jesus. Exit John the Baptist. Enter Jesus. And everything else we see in the Gospel of Luke and everything else in human history, indeed in all eternity, points to the glory of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. God is pleased with him. And the good news of Jesus Christ is that if you've put your faith in Jesus, God is pleased with you. Not because of you, And who you are. Our comfort not found in our own righteousness, but in the righteousness of Christ. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, is what the writer of Hebrews tells us. Because faith, by God's grace, unites us to Jesus, and God is fully pleased with him. Any confidence you have this morning as a Christian is not meant to be found in the mirror, but in the man, Jesus Christ, the God-man, truly God and truly man. You want to please him? Look to Christ. God was so pleased with him. And Christian, it's important for you to know the good news for you. If you've trusted him, he is pleased with you. The only way for God to be pleased with you is to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus, to receive forgiveness of sins, and to be baptized upon that profession of faith. If you have not yet done that, please don't leave here today without talking to someone who has. Let's bow and pray. Father, we pray that we would find rest in Jesus, knowing that you're fully pleased with him, that your will, your word has fully been satisfied and fulfilled in Jesus, and that we would grow in trusting him, that we would grow in resting in him, that we would find peace and joy and life today, through the eternal life that's been given to all the trust in Jesus. Lord, we ask for your help. We ask for your strength to walk in obedience to you, to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Lord, we ask this morning you would fill us with joy and turn our hearts to Jesus and knowing him more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.